Good luck with that, right? <laughs> Testing one, two. There we go. Sound is definitely one of those things that either it'll it'll make everything incredibly awesome, or it's the most irritating thing, you know, uh, if something's not quite right. Yeah, I see what you're saying here. I'm going to have to hold this with this hand. <laughs> It'd be the same as holding the microphone. So, okay, yeah, that's good. All right, there we go. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm, okay, I made the commercial. There you go. Pray about that if that's you. Or you say, well, I don't really know anything, but I do love to have good sound in church, and you're willing to give yourself a little bit of time. It would mean that you'd have to come up during practice time and tweak sound. And right now we're practicing on Sunday mornings, uh, 8.30. It's a little commitment, but, you know, ministry is about giving of yourself, and you kind of have to... Uh, just kind of give of yourself and, and do something for the Lord. As I was saying a second ago, I know that there's a lot of things on a very few amount of people, and it's the job of the church to step up and say, how can I meet a need? Uh, I may not be trained for it. I may not be quite the right person, but you know what? I can do something for the church, right? So that's what it's about. All right. Ah, yeah, we were skating yesterday, and I tell you what, doing that crossover, that – that, see, I broke my ankle last year, and this is the first time I was doing crossovers. And But it was actually a good thing. I know the doctor would say, you need to do more of that because it's all about stretching. Uh, but I didn't quite, quite like it at the time. I think the last time we were there, I won't mention the skating rink, but they had music that was using some really foul language in, in the music. I didn't realize that we've come a long ways. You know, when I was young, we played music, and we knew the music was not exactly Christian music, but they didn't say some of the words that they're saying nowadays. It was, I was kind of shocked. I told the, the floor host person, this was a while back, I said, hey, you know, there's little kids. He, he was kind of, didn't have any idea what I was talking about. Anyway, that's enough. I just yak him today. Now I need to yak something that's important so that we can uh, be enhanced and encouraged in the Lord today. Uh, by the way, do, is there any visitors here that we can acknowledge? I just I want to take the time. If you are a visitor, yes, sir, thank you so much for coming. We hope that you enjoy your time here with us. We're usually a little bit more organized. I'm an interim here, and we're kind of winging it a little bit. But I tell you what, you know, as I've said earlier on, this church has incredible potential to be the church in Hebron as far as what God wants to do in this community. And so we are up and coming. Welcome to the visitors. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. Hold your place there, if you have an old-fashioned Bible, and flip over to 1 Corinthians 9. So there's two primary scriptures. Matthew 8, hold your place, and go to 1 Corinthians, chapter 9. I'm going to take a little break 
from this theme that I've been on, moving on in God. We're just going to put that on a shelf just for a little bit. And I want us to kind of move in a different direction. Um, we're going to be talking about track and field, running. Does anybody run in here? <laughs> so I don't run to the refrigerator. I don't know what running. No, we, well, how, how about this? Has anybody used to be a runner in here? All right. So you know what's involved in running. Well, guess what? You are recruited into the race of God. You are in a race. It's called the Christian race. You know, you've got your spiritual shoes on. You've got your, your glow-in-the-dark shirt with the, the little band, uh, bandana or whatever you want to call that. It's, it's reflective tape there. And you're getting ready. You're getting your muscles warmed up because you are called to run a race and to run it well. The Bible says that you are called to run well, and we're going to talk about that. The title of my sermon is Winners and Losers at the Finish Line. Winners and Losers at the Finish Line. Turn to your neighbor and look at them and say, you are a winner. Don't say loser. You are a winner. <laughs> Make sure you say winner, not loser. Now, you may be shocked a little bit that I'm saying that there's not just winners, but there's also losers in the race of God. And I know that that might be shocking. Let me, uh, you know, help you. Do not worry about it. Don't fear about it. Here's how it goes. Jesus Christ, in a sense, has made all of us winners. He has run a race for us. When he died on the cross and he resurrected on the third day, he won that race for us. And so in that sense... We are in the race to win because he won. But the race that I'm talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is a completely different kind of race. We have to understand that. What Paul's getting ready to describe here, it's a different race than what Jesus ran. He ran a race that involves our eternal salvation. This race is not. 1 Corinthians 9, two verses of scripture. Look at them with me. I'm in the New King James. You can follow along. Here we go. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a, a, a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Let's pray a little bit. Father, help us to understand, to grasp what is involved here in the Christian race. Help us to know the gravity of it, the ramifications of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We need help to run this Christian race. Am I the only one? We need help, right? This Christian race has got a lot of things in it. He uses a metaphor here. The Christian race is obviously the Christian life. And the idea here is that we will produce. We need to have an endurance. And with that endurance, at the end, we're going to be crowned. If we win, if we run it to win, you and I are going to be crowned. And that's important. I went to the Florence Freedom baseball game. Anybody ever seen them? Florence Freedom game. I don't know. It was the last week or week before last. And they were playing Indiana. And wow, they just got their clocks cleaned by Indiana, I have to tell you. <laughs> but the one thing that I admired about our team was, though, that these batters, the, the pitcher was incredible. They couldn't get a ball. They couldn't get a ball hit. 
But these batters, right down to the very end of the game, when there's no way they could even get close to winning, they were there. They had such an endurance. They had such a drive in them to win the game, even though they knew that it was lost. And I could see some of the, the guys, they were coming into the, into the pit, and they were just frustrated. They were just throwing things. They are upset that they didn't get it done right. You see, that's the kind of drive that we need. We need to be people that are not quitters in life, but to press on. For them, for these people, they are the kind of people that it, it so matters to them, and maybe to you, to run the Christian race and to run it well. There's an undercurrent of Holy Spirit drive down deep in their souls, propelling them forward. Why? For a crown. For a crown. Now, there are two popular views or beliefs taught in the church that kind of throw in the wrench at this idea that we find here in 1 Corinthians. And here's the first one. It goes like this. Most people view that everybody in God's family receives a crown in life. Everyone is recei receives a crown. That means everybody gets a trophy. It means that everybody is treated the same in, in terms of your eternal blessing. Everybody's going to rule and reign with Christ equally. You may have that view. That's one view. We say, what's wrong with that? Well, we'll get to it in a second. The second view is similar but different. For a lot of people, heaven itself is that crown. Nothing more, nothing less. In other words, the purpose of the race is to award you with eternal life itself. It's to seal the deal. I've run into a lot of people that believe that. That the, the crown is actually eternal life. I was taught, I mentioned to you that I was raised Catholic. I was taught that St. Peter would be waiting for me at the door, at the gates of heaven, to make one final decision about me, whether I have eternal life or not have eternal life. So as a young Catholic, my eternal salvation was pending in this view. You may have that view as well. We'll deal with it in just a few moments. So let me ask you a question. Why should a correct understanding of this race matter anyway? Why, why are you bringing it up, preacher? That this, why does it matter anyway? Because here it is. It is so deflating to one's faith to have the wrong reasons to live right. It is demoralizing. It destroys our faith to have the wrong reasons to live right. There are some right reasons. Ask yourself the question, if I run the Christian race, if I really put everything into it, why do I anyway? I mean, we already have eternal life, right? And you can't lose that. So why bother pressing forward with anything? Because we're Christians already, right? Why do I get up on a Sunday morning and I sing songs and I shake hands and I make friends and I'm encouraged by others and I hear the scriptures? Why do I do that? Why do I take my Christian faith into the workplace and, and share it with other people if you do that? Why do I model it in front of my family, my wife and my children? Why do I do that? I know what some of you are thinking. Well, it's because we love God. And certainly nobody would argue that. It's a good reason. But it wasn't Paul's reason in this passage. So to quickly refute these two views, and I'll move on, the idea that heaven is a crown to be won, as heaven is eter excuse me, eternal life, it flies right in the, in the face of everything that we understand about how the fact that we're saved by the grace of God. It's apart from our works. 
We have eternal life simply because he loved us and he gave his life for us. The gavel has already swung. The verdict is already in. There's nothing pending in your account. The decision for eternal life has already been received. New birth is already accomplished. Right now, where you sit, if you're in Christ, you already have eternal life. The second view, that the crown of reward is passed out like a trophy, everyone gets a blessing. Uh, If you just read a little bit further into the passage in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, Paul went on to say this. But I discipline my body and I bring it into into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself have become disqualified. There's a scripture for you. Disqualified from what? The imperishable crown. Earned the same way that any disciplined athlete would earn an award. That's the idea. I used to have a a pastor, a mentor of mine back years ago. um, And he used to say things that kind of irritated me. You know, he would say things like, Tony, I'm going to make my mark. I'm going to make my mark in this world. Make your mark. He says, Tony, you need to, when you, in the ministry, you need to make your mark. And I always thought, you know, I was young, and I thought, this guy's just kind of arrogant, you know, make your mark. We don't make our mark in the world. What I didn't understand at the time was he was actually referring to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. When Paul said, run in such a way that you may obtain the prize, what he was saying was, this race matters more than anything else in the world. This race is above everything. And we don't, we, when we run, we do it for a reason. Why are we doing this? What is the reason for it? What are the ramifications of, of, of this run? Should I make this kind of investment? It is so worth it, Paul was saying. Now flip on over to Matthew chapter 8. This chapter offers a glimpse of what it looks like, and it begins with the narrative of the centurion who came to Jesus. He was requesting healing. I'm sure you know the story. And the man said, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said, hey, I'll come and heal him. No, 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 don't, don't come and heal him. Just say the word and he'll be healed. Pick it up with me in verse 10, Matthew 8, 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit, to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. As you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very hour. This is an incredible passage of scripture. Um, now, there's only one other time in the entire New Testament where Jesus talked about great faith. It was the woman who had a demon-possessed daughter, and he wanted to, she wanted for Jesus to heal her, and so she approached him with a resolve like no other, and this is in Matthew 15, and the problem was she was an outsider. She was a Gentile, and so she did not have the benefit of the promises of God, and so Jesus kind of made it tough with her, In verse 26, it said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. What? Have you read that before? It is not good to take the children's bread, speaking of this lady, and throw it to dogs. That's kind of like an insult, but you have to understand something. 
What's important here is her tenacity. She said in verse 27, Lord, even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Wow. He answered, oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So both Matthew 8 and Matthew 15, we find Jesus two times in the New Testament talking about somebody's great faith. These two passages can provide a contrast in our, in our topic today in terms of having faith or having great faith. You can ask yourself the question, let's see, do I have faith or do I have great faith? And how do you get great faith if you have faith? Or maybe you don't have a whole lot of faith at all. You can decide how you are and where you are in your, in your walk with God. In Matthew 8, Jesus, he ties this narrative to a future event. In other words, he catapults us into the future. And so he says here in verse 11, back to Matthew 8, he said, Many will come from the east and the west to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Stop right there. Some people say the metaphor depicts a great banquet that actually it correlates with Luke chapter 22. You don't need to turn there. I'm going I'm to fly through it. But in that gospel, Jesus informed his disciples that because they have continued with him in his trials, he said, you will eat and drink at my table and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Some people say it's connected to that. Other Bible teachers agree, and they say that Matthew 8 seems to hint of a wedding supper, a concept develops further along in Matthew's gospel. People from every direction of the world, picture this, people from all over the world, it is implied, will come and sit. The word sit there is also the word recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. This is a, the, the, the wedding event. It's, it's, uh, it's confirmed in Revelation chapter 19. John called it the marriage supper of the Lamb. What is the marriage supper of the Lamb? Honestly, I don't really know. I, I don't think theologians really know what that is. But it does appear that our great God and Savior is planning a very prestigious ceremony, a wedding supper for his faithful bride. Well, who is the bride? Well, the church, right? Well, some would say the church. I don't necessarily agree, and there's many that don't. Some say that the bride is actually a remnant from within the church. That's another lesson for another time. We can look at that at another time. Okay, let's try to piece together what we've got. When Jesus heard the centurion, he said, only say the word, my servant will be healed. He marveled at his Christ-like faith, or his childlike faith. He said, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. This reminds me of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And everyone's coming from all over the world, and they're going to sit at the banquet table. But the sons, look at verse 12. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There's to be weeping and gnashing of teeth then. We can assume that not all of God's sons are invited to the table, right? Some of them are thrown out into this outer darkness. I don't know about you, but that's kind of scary. I, I've, I've read this scripture many times over the years, and it kind of makes me uncomfortable. I think people lose sleep over passages like this one and say, yeah, why are you bringing it up? Well, I want us to understand. I want us to understand what the scriptures are really talking about. Some Bible teachers say that the outer darkness is a reference to the pits of hell. 
based on 1 Peter 2.4 that talks about the chains of darkness in hell. And that makes sense, or does it? If that is the case, then Jesus is saying that since these particular sons didn't have great faith, they were cast out of heaven and thrown into this, this place called outer darkness or chains of outer darkness or something like that? Ah, I don't think so. To solve this theological blunder, let's return to the narrative, to the narrow parameters of the narrative. It is predictable that Bible scholars, they, they feel the need to cherry pick certain words, scary words from the passage, and then they impose new meaning on them by implication. In other words, in the middle of a metaphor, somebody decides to start reading literal. You know, will Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob literally sit down at a literal table? Probably not. Maybe. Will there be enough room for all the saints? Because we're not talking about three or four or five people. We're talking potentially millions and millions of people that are going to be sitting down there. These are people that left houses and lands and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. They've denied their own life even unto death. Those people will be there. So if we stay within the parameters of the metaphor, we won't have to get these fears, you know, get all worked up about what's going on here to do the right interpretation. In Jewish custom, even to this day, wedding banquets are generally held at night. That's important to know. If we could describe a wedding banquet in Jerusalem in 30 AD, I'm sure it would be a, a gorgeous, extravagant event held in a first century wedding hall filled with brilliant light to illuminate everything. I'm sure it would be gorgeous. But if we were to step outside of the hall itself into the dark and gloomy streets of Jerusalem in the middle of the night, in contrast, wouldn't that be the point? You see, it is a place where one could only peer in through the windows to see this glorious celebration. We're called to it, but only certain people are chosen for it. We'll talk about that in a moment. There is a real marriage supper of the Lamb according to Revelation 19. I think that it's beyond our imagination of what it's going to be. I'm sure it's going to be glorious beyond what the mind can think. The finest crystal wine goblets are going to be on the table. The best sterling silver that anyone has ever seen is going to be on the table. The china that is used will be, on, be beyond anything that you could ever imagine. The chandeliers, they're going to be breathtaking, I'm sure. The food will be the best gourmet cooking that any five-star uh, hotel would be envious for. And then there's the guest list. Obviously, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be there. But how about Noah? How about Moses? I bet you they're going to be there. I bet you King David's going to be there. And his friend Jonathan. I bet you Elijah's going to be there. His protege, Elisha. And I'm sure the prophet Samuel and Ruth and Esther, they're going to be there. Isaiah, the prophet, he's going to be there. You, have, you can't leave out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're going to be there. They were in the fire. And then Daniel, the prophet. You, we know that the apostle Paul's going to be there, right? Peter's going to be there. James, John, Philip. Mary, the mother of Jesus, the other Mary, the one that had the demon, she's going to be there. And guess what? The centurion is going to be there too because Jesus alluded to that. Because why? He had this great faith and it, it reminded him of this time. But how about the ones who didn't have great faith? They had faith, 
just not great faith. According to Jesus, they were cast out. Out of where? To the wedding supper or out of heaven? There's the debate in the body of Christ. Dr. Charles Stanley, senior pastor of First Baptist Church Atlanta, in his book, Eternal Security, he makes this statement about this passage. He says, the outer darkness represents not so much an actual place as it does a sphere of influence and privilege. What he meant was that this place is not, it, it, is, a, it is not a geographical area in the kingdom where certain men and women are consigned to stay. It is simply a figure of speech describing their low rank or status in God's kingdom. I have to tell you that besides him and a few others, not a whole lot of people tackle this. What's going on at the wedding banquet? Could it be that this outer darkness dilemma is really a translation issue? I think it is. A closer look at the term outer darkness will reveal something very important. Firstly, it's only found in Matthew's gospel two other times, nowhere else in the New Testament. What that means is it's a Matthew-only style of writing. Secondly, from the English translation, it is not employed in the most natural way that people speak. The late Dr. Zane Hodges, former Greek scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary. I love this guy. I followed Zane Hodges. He's passed away several years ago. He says this about this passage. The Greek te text has a more uh, idiomatic, idiomatic rendering. That's his word. In other words, a more fluent rendering. The Greek text is more fluent than the English translation. He says the sons will be thrown not out of, into outer darkness, but outside in the dark. He says that's the way the text, how you see it from the Greek perspective. English kind of throws this other thing in here. So the message here, if we stay within the parameters of the metaphor, is that inside the banquet hall, there will be a great and brilliant divine light. Who would that light be? It's going to be Christ. Can you imagine? He is the radiance. And... It's going to illuminate this incredible celebration with millions of people from all over the world. The love slaves, the people that have been beheaded, perhaps. Don't mean to be graphic. It's going to be all kinds of people. But in contrast, the sons whose faith was not great will be outside in the dark, and they're going to be weeping, and they're going to be gnashing their teeth. Well, what about the weeping and gnashing of teeth? I mean, what is that? Certainly... I mean, some people say they, the reason why they were doing that is because they were in hell and they were just tormented. Yeah, maybe. Again, I lean on Dr. Stanley, his perspective. He points to the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, a logical explanation of this. He says, at the end of Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, he had been falsely accused of blasphemy. I'm sure that some of you know this story. And after uh, his long defense, the Bible says that his accusers were cut to the heart. And they began to gnash their teeth at Stephen. Why? They're in pain? Not really. They were unable to cope with the wisdom of the Spirit of God that was on him as he preached the truth. And it made them so angry that they were gnashing their teeth. Those men heard the truth and they knew that they were in error. They just couldn't deal with it. They were extremely frustrated with themselves. They were frustrated with Stephen. And they just wanted to do something about it. And of course, we know the rest of the story. They picked up stones and they stoned him to death. And Jesus was waiting there. These sons in Matthew 8 find themselves also cut to the heart. 
with anger and frustration. Why are you preaching this on Sunday morning? This is a tough subject. I want us to understand why we put on our spiritual shoes. We've got the bandana. We've got the, we're ready to run a race. Why are we doing it? If we run it for the wrong reasons, what good is that? It isn't that, they, that these Matthew 8 guys are outside of God's family. I am not saying that they're outside of God's family. But they're definitely outside of the winner's circle with the festivities that are on the inside. In closing, Matthew's gospel tells another story very similar in Matthew 22. Don't turn there. We're out of time. I'll give you the gist of it. Ma Matthew said uh, he's talking about Jesus, and Jesus is in a parable about guess what? A wedding. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants and to call those who were invited to the wedding, but they were not willing to come. I'll speed it up. Eventually, the wedding hall was filled with good and bad people found from the highways and the byways of life. You see, the, the people that we would think would come to this great thing, this great event, they didn't want to come. So the king says, just arrange it. Find people that will come, and they came. This certain king, he was standing and looking over all the people that were there, and he found a man there that didn't have on a wedding garment. You may know the story. And he says these words in Matthew 22, 12. Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? The man was speechless. Wow. The king's words fit right in with Matthew 8. He said, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him outside in the dark. Who? The friend. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then this is the part that I glue on to right here. For many are called, but few are chosen. For what? The wedding, the banquet, the celebration. I, I'm sure you're wondering, well, what are the wedding garments? What is that about? Why didn't the friend of God have one on? Revelation 19.8 answers that question. You don't have to turn there. I'm flying through. Revelation 19.8 says, and to her, that's the remnant church, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. It wasn't that the rejected sons didn't possess the righteousness of Christ. Let's not be misunderstood. They had an, a righteousness imputed to them. They were righteous in that sense. But they didn't have his righteousness displayed in their daily living. What? You see, all of us have been given the gift of righteousness living in us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. But the righteous acts are the saints is simply allowing the righteousness of Christ to be displayed in our living, displayed in our words, displayed in our actions, displayed in our thinking. That's what the righteousness of Christ is about. Much like the man who buried his talents, they buried away the life of Christ. These sons that were not, entered, that were not allowed to enter into this special occasion. Now that shakes me a little bit. How about us? How can we be found in this number? How can we be counted at the marriage supper of the Lamb? 
I, I think everybody here knows the answer. It's by yielding to the ways of God, right? What is the ways of God? The kingdom of God is simply his ways. By surrendering our lives to his will moment to moment, by making room for him in our life. You know, Christine and I, we, if we want to do something, we've got to put it on the calendar. If we want to do something with somebody else, we were having this conversation the other day about some friends of ours, and we know they're busy and we're busy. The only way anything's going to happen is if we put something on the calendar and we impose it into our life. Well, guess what? This is how we are to do things with God. We have to impose. It will not come free. Impose his ways in prayer, in our services. Last verse. Remember Paul's words. Run the race in such a way that you may obtain it. Obtain the prize. Let's pray. Father, help us over this passage. It's a difficult word. It's a sobering word. Help us, Lord, to not be those that are just peering in, looking at what could have been for us and angry at our lack of investment. Father, we know that we're saved by your grace. We know, Lord, that you love us unconditionally forever. We know, Lord, that we are the approved of God in that sense. But help us, Lord, to have a drive on the inside of us to make our mark in a sense that it will count for eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. God bless you guys. Let's all stand to our feet. You are, oh, we're going to do Holy Communion. I'm sorry. Oh, is that right? If you want to do Holy Communion, I don't know what you, how you do it, but 